When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Today, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 of Memories and Adventures by Arthur Conan Doyle, from Arthur Conan Doyle's personal story, Memories and Adventures. Chapter 1. Early Recollections. I was born on May 22, 1859, at Picardy Place, Edinburgh, so named because in old days a colony of French Huguenots had settled there. At the time of their coming it was a village outside the city walls, but now it is at the end of Queen Street, abutting upon Leith Walk, when last I visited it, it seemed to have degenerated, but at that time the flats were of good repute. My father was the youngest son of John Doyle, who under the nom de crayon of H.B. made a great reputation in London from about 1825 to 1850. He came from Dublin about the year 1815, and may be said to be the father of polite caricature, for in the old days satire took the brutal shape of making the object grotesque in features and figure. "'Gilray and Rowlandson had no other idea. "'My grandfather was a gentleman, "'drawing gentlemen for gentlemen, "'and the satire lay in the wit of the picture "'and not in the misdrawing of faces. "'This was a new idea, "'but it has been followed by most caricaturists since, "'and so has become familiar. "'There were no comic papers in those days, "'and the weekly cartoon of H.B. "'was lithographed and distributed. "'He exerted, I am told, "'quite an influence upon politics.' and was on terms of intimacy with many of the leading men of the day. I can remember him in his old age, a very handsome and dignified man with features of the strong Anglo-Irish Duke of Wellington stamp. He died in 1868. My grandfather was left a widower with a numerous family, of which four boys and one girl survived. Each of the boys made a name for himself, for all inherited the artistic powers of their father. The elder, James Doyle, wrote The Chronicles of England, "'illustrated with colored pictures by himself, "'examples of color printing "'which beat any subsequent work that I've ever seen. "'He also spent thirteen years "'in doing the official baronage of England, "'a wonderful monument of industry and learning. "'Another brother was Henry Doyle, "'a great judge of old paintings, "'and in later years the manager "'of the National Gallery in Dublin, "'where he earned his C.B. "'The third son was Richard Doyle, "'whose whimsical humor made him famous in Punch.' the cover of which, with its dancing elves, is still so familiar an object. Finally came Charles Doyle, my father. The Doyle family seemed to have been fairly well-to-do, thanks to my grandfather's talents. They lived in London in Cambridge Terrace. 
A sketch of their family life is given in Dickie Doyle's diary. They lived up to their income, however, and it became necessary to find places for the boys. When my father was only nineteen, a seat was offered him in the government office of works in Edinburgh, whither he went. There he spent his working life, and thus it came about that I, an Irishman by extraction, was born in the Scottish capital of Edinburgh. The Doyles, Anglo-Norman in origin, were strong Roman Catholics. The original Doyle, or Doyle, was a cadet branch of the Staffordshire Doyles, which has produced Sir Francis Hastings Doyle and many other distinguished men. This cadet shared in the invasion of Ireland and was granted estates in County Wexford, where a great clan rose of dependents, illegitimate children, and others, all taking the feudal lord's name, just as the de Burgs founded the clan of Burke. We can only claim to be the main stem by virtue of community of character and appearance with the English Doyles and the unbroken use of the same crest and coat of arms. My forebears, like most old Irish families in the South, kept to the old faith at the Reformation and fell victims to the penal laws in consequence. These became so crushing upon landed gentry that my great-grandfather was driven from his estate and became a silk mercer in Dublin, where H.B. was born. This family record was curiously confirmed by Monsignor Barry Doyle, destined, I think, for the highest honors of the Roman Church, who traces back to the younger brother of my great-grandfather. I trust the reader will indulge me in my excursion into these family matters, which are of vital interest to the family, but must be tedious to the outsider. As I am on the subject, I wish to say a word about my mother's family, the more so as she was great on archaeology, and had, with the help of Sir Arthur Vickers, Ulster King of Arms, and himself a relative, worked out her descent for more than five hundred years, and so composed a family tree which lies before me as I write, and on which many of the great ones of the earth have roosted. Her father was a young doctor of Trinity College, William Foley, who died young and left his family in comparative poverty. He had married one Catherine Pack, whose deathbed, or rather the white waxen thing which lay upon that bed, is the very earliest recollection of my life. Her near relative, uncle, I think, was Sir Dennis Pack, who led the Scottish Brigade at Waterloo. As was but right, since they were descended in a straight line from a major in Cromwell's army who settled in Ireland. One of them, Anthony Pack, had part of his head carried off at the same battle, so I fear it is part of a family tradition that we lose our heads in action. His brain was covered over by a silver plate where he lived for many years, subject only to very bad fits of temper, which some of us have had with less excuse. But the real romance of the family lies in the fact that about the middle of the 17th century, the Reverend Richard Pack, who was head of Kilkenny College, married Mary Percy, who was heir to the Irish branch of the Percys of Northumberland. By this alliance we all connect up, and I have every generation by name, as marked out by my dear mother, with that illustrious line up to three separate marriages with the Plantagenets. One has, therefore, some strange strains in one's blood, which are noble in origin, and one can but hope, or noble in tendency. Of my boyhood I need say little, save that it was Spartan at home, and more Spartan at the Edinburgh school, where a tawse brandishing schoolmaster of the old type made our young lives miserable. From the age of seven to nine, I suffered under this pockmarked, one-eyed rascal, who might have stepped from the pages of Dickens. In the evenings, home and books were my sole consolation, save for weekend holidays. My comrades were rough boys, and I became a rough boy, too. If there is any truth in the idea of reincarnation, a point on which my mind is still open, I think some earlier experience of mine must have been as a stark fighter, 
for he came out strongly in youth, when I rejoiced in battle. We lived for some time in a cul-de-sac street with a very vivid life of its own, and a fierce feud between the small boys who dwelt on either side of it. Finally it was fought out between two champions, I representing the poorer boys who lived in flats, and my opponent the richer boys who lived in the opposite villas. We fought in the garden of one of the said villas, and had an excellent contest of many rounds, not being strong enough to weaken each other. When I got home after the battle, my mother cried, "'Oh, Arthur, what a dreadful eye you've got!' to which I replied, "'You just go across and look at Eddie Tullock's eye.' I met a well-deserved setback on one occasion when I stood forward to fight a bootmaker's boy, who had come into our preserve upon an errand. He had a green beige bag in his hand, which contained a heavy boot, and this he swung against my skull with a force which knocked me pretty well senseless. It was a useful lesson. I will say for myself, however, that though I was pugnacious, I was never so to those weaker than myself, and that some of my escapades were in the defense of such. As I will show in my chapter on sport, I carried on my taste into a later period of my life. One or two little pictures stand out which may be worth recording. When my grandfather's grand London friends passed through Edinburgh, they used, to our occasional embarrassment, to call it the little flat to see how Charles is getting on. In my earliest childhood, such a one came, tall, white-haired, and affable. I was so young that it seems like a faint dream, and yet it pleases me to think that I have sat on Thackeray's knee. He greatly admired my dear little mother with her gray Irish eyes and her vivacious Celtic ways. Indeed, no one met her without being captivated by her. Once, too, I got a glimpse of history. It was in 1866, if my days are right, that some well-to-do Irish relatives asked us over for a few weeks, and we passed that time in a great house in Kings County. I spent much of it with the horses and dogs, and became friendly with the young groom. The stables opened onto a country road by an arched gate with a loft over it. One morning, being in the yard, I saw the young groom rush into the yard with every sign of fear and hastily shut and bar the doors. He then climbed into the loft, beckoning me to come with him. From the loft window, we saw a gang of rough men, twenty or so, slouching along the road. When they came opposite to the gate, they stopped and, looking up, shook their fists and cursed at us. The groom answered back most volubly. Afterwards I understood that these men were a party of Fenians, and that I had had a glimpse of one of the periodical troubles which poor old Ireland has endured. Perhaps now at last they may be drawing to an end. During these first ten years I was a rapid reader, so rapid that some small library with which we dealt gave my mother notice that books would not be changed more than twice a day. My tastes were boylike enough, for Maine Reed was my favorite author, and his Scalp Hunters, my favorite book. I wrote a little book and illustrated it myself in early days. There was a man in it, and there was a tiger who amalgamated shortly after they met. I remarked to my mother with precocious wisdom that it was easy to get people into scrapes, but not so easy to get them out again, which is surely the experience of every writer of adventures. We'll return with Chapter 2 right after these sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
And now, Chapter 2 of Memories and Adventures by Arthur Conan Doyle. Title, Under the Jesuits. I was in my tenth year when I was sent to Hodder, which is the preparatory school for Stonyhurst, the big Roman Catholic public school in Lancashire. It was a long journey for a little boy who had never been away from home before, and I felt very lonesome and wept bitterly upon the way. But in due time I arrived safely at Preston, which was then the nearest station, and with many other small boys and our black-robed Jesuit guardians, we drove some twelve miles to the school. Hodder is about a mile from Stonyhurst, and as all the boys there are youngsters under twelve, it forms a very useful institution, breaking the lad into school ways before he mixes with the big fellows. I had two years at Hodder. The year was not broken up by the frequent holidays which illuminate the present educational period. Save for six weeks, each summer, one never left the school. On the whole, those first two years were happy years. I could hold my own both in brain and in strength with my comrades. I was fortunate enough to get under the care of a kindly principal, one Father Cassidy, who was more human than Jesuits usually are. I've always kept a warm remembrance of this man and his gentle ways to the little boys, young rascals many of us, who were committed to his care. I remember the Franco-German War breaking out at this period and how it made a ripple even in our secluded backwater. From Hodder I pressed on to Stonyhurst, that grand medieval dwelling house which was left some 150 years ago to the Jesuits, who brought over their whole teaching staff from some college in Holland in order to carry it on as a public school. The general curriculum, like the building, was medieval but sound. I understand it has been modernized since. There were seven classes, elements, figures, rudiments, grammar, syntax, poetry, and rhetoric, and you were allotted a year for each, or seven in all, a course with which I faithfully complied, two having already been completed at Hodder. It was the usual public school routine of Euclid, algebra, and the classics, taught in the usual way, which is calculated to leave a lasting abhorrence of these subjects. To give boys a little slab of Virgil or Homer with no general idea as to what it is all about, or what the classical age was like, is surely an absurd way of treating the subject. I am sure that an intelligent boy could learn more by reading a good translation of Homer for a week than by a year's study of the original as it is usually carried out. It was no worse at Stonyhurst than at any other school, and it can only be excused on the plea that any exercise, however stupid in itself, forms a sort of mental dumbbell by which one can improve one's mind. It is, I think, a thoroughly false theory. I can say with truth that my Latin and Greek which cost me so many weary hours, have been little use to me in life, and that my mathematics have been no use at all. On the other hand, some things which I picked up almost by accident, the art of reading aloud, learned when my mother was knitting, or the reading of French books, learned by spelling out the captions of the Jules Verne illustrations, have been of the greatest possible service. My classical education left me with a horror of the classics, and I was astonished to find how fascinating they were when I read them in a reasonable manner in later years. Year by year, then, I see myself climbing those seven weary steps and passing through as many stages of my boyhood. I do not know if the Jesuit system of education is good or not. I would need to have tried another system as well before I could answer that. On the whole, it was justified by results, for I think it turned out as decent a set of young fellows as any other school would do. In spite of a large infusion of foreigners and some disaffected Irish, we were a patriotic crowd, and our little pulse beat time with the heart of the nation. 
I am told that the average of VCs and DSOs now held by old Stony Horse boys is very high as compared with other schools. The Jesuit teachers have no trust in human nature, and perhaps they're justified. We were never allowed for an instant to be alone with each other, and I think that the immorality which is rife in public schools was at a minimum in consequence. In our games and our walks, the priests always took part, and a master perambulated the dormitories at night. Such a system may weaken self-respect and self-help, but it at least minimizes temptation and scandal. The life was Spartan, and yet we had all that was needed. Dry bread and hot, well-watered milk were a frugal breakfast. There was a joint, and twice a week a pudding for dinner. Then there was an odd snack called bread and beer in the afternoon, a bit of dry bread, and the most extraordinary drink, which was brown but had no other characteristic of beer. Finally, there was hot milk again, bread, butter, and often potatoes for supper. We were all very healthy on this regime. On Fridays. Everything in every way was plain to the verge of austerity, save that we dwelt in a beautiful building, dined in a marble-floored hall with Mistral's Gallery, prayed in a lovely church, and generally lived in very choice surroundings so far as vision, and not comfort, was concerned. Corporal punishment was severe, and I can speak with feeling as I think few, if any, boys of my time endured more of it. It was of a peculiar nature, imported also, I fancy, from Holland. The instrument was a piece of India rubber of the size and shape of a thick boot sole. This was called a tolly. Why, no one explained, unless it was a Latin pun on what we had to bear. One blow of this instrument, delivered with intent, would cause the palm of the hand to swell up and change color. When I say that the usual punishment of the larger boys was nine on each hand, and that nine on one hand was the absolute minimum, it will be understood that it was a severe ordeal, and that the sufferer could not, as a rule, turn the handle of the door to get out of the room in which he had suffered. To take twice nine upon a cold day was about the extremity of human endurance. I think, however, that it was good for us in the end, for it was a point of honor with many of us not to show that we were hurt, and that is one of the best trainings for a hard life. If I was more beaten than the others, it was not that I was in any way vicious, but it was that I had a nature which responded eagerly to affectionate kindness, which I never received, but which rebelled against threats, and took a perverted pride in showing that it would not be cowed by violence. I went out of my way to do really mischievous and outrageous things simply to show that my spirit was unbroken. An appeal to my better nature, and not to my fears, would have found that answer at once. I deserved all I got for what I did, but I did it because I was mishandled. I do not remember any one who attained particular distinction among my schoolfellows, save Bernard Partridge of Punch, whom I recollect as a very quiet, gentle boy. Father Thurston, who is destined to be one of my opponents in psychic matters so many years later, was in the class above me. There was a young novice, too, with whom I hardly came in contact, but whose handsome and spiritual appearance I well remember. He was Bernard Vaughan, afterwards the famous preacher. Save for one schoolfellow, James Ryan, a remarkable boy who grew into a remarkable man, I carried away no lasting friendship from Stonyhurst. It was only in the latest stage of my Stonyhurst development that I realized that I had some literary streak in me which, which was not common to all. It came to me as quite a surprise, and even more perhaps to my masters, who had taken a rather hopeless view of my future prospects. One master, when I told him that I thought of being a civil engineer, remarked, "'Well, Doyle, 
"'You may be an engineer, "'but I don't think you will ever be a civil one. "'Another assured me that I would never do any good in the world, "'and perhaps from his point of view "'his prophecy has been justified. "'The particular incident, however, "'which brought my latent powers to the surface, "'depended upon the fact that in the second highest class, "'which I reached in 1874, "'it was incumbent to write poetry, so-called, "'on any theme given.' This was done as a dreary, unnatural task by most boys. Very comical their wooings of the muses used to be. For one saturated, as I really was with affection for verse, it was a labor of love, and I produced verses which were poor enough in themselves, but seemed miracles to those who had no urge in that direction. The particular theme was the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites, and my effort from, like pallid daisies in a grassy wood, so round the sward the tents of Israel stood. Through... There was no time for thought and none for fear, for Egypt's horse already pressed their rear. Down to the climax. One horrid cry, the tragedy was o'er, and Pharaoh with his army seen, no more. Was workmanlike, though wooden and conventional. Anyhow, it marked what Mr. Sneed used to call a signpost, and I realized myself a little. In the last year I edited the college magazine and wrote a good deal of indifferent verse. I also went up for the matriculation examination of London University, a good all-round test which winds up the Stonyhurst curriculum, and I surprised everyone by taking honors. So after all, I emerged from Stonyhurst at the age of 16 with more credit than seemed probable from my rather questionable record. Early in my career there, an offer had been made to my mother that my school fees would be remitted if I were dedicated to the church. She refused this, so both the church and I had an escape. When I think, however, of her small income and great struggle to keep up appearances and make both ends meet, it was a fine example of her independence of character, for it meant paying out some fifty pounds a year, which might have been avoided by one word of assent. I had yet another year with the Jesuits, for it was determined that I was still too young to begin any professional studies, and that I should go to Germany and learn German. I was dispatched, therefore, to Feldkirk, which is a Jesuit school in the Vorarlberg province of Austria, to which many better-class German boys are sent. Here the conditions were much more humane, and I met with far more human kindness than at Stonyhurst, with the immediate result that I ceased to be a resentful young rebel and became a pillar of law and order. I began badly, however, for on the first night of my arrival I was kept awake by a boy snoring loudly in the dormitory. I stood it as long as I could, but at last I was driven to action, Curious wooden compasses called bit-share, or bed-scissors, were stuck into each side of the narrow beds. One of these I plucked out, walked down the dormitory, and having spotted the offender, proceeded to poke him with my stick. He awoke, and was considerably amazed to see in the dim light a large youth whom he had never seen before. I arrived after hours, assaulting him with a club. I was still engaged in stirring him up when I felt a touch on my shoulder, and was confronted by the master, who ordered me back to bed. Next morning I got a lecture on free and easy English ways, and taking the law into my own hands. But this start was really my worst lapse, and I did well in the future. It was a happy year on the whole. I made less progress with German than I should, for there were about twenty English and Irish boys who naturally balked the wishes of their parents by herding together. There was no cricket, but there were tobogganing and fair football, and a weird game, football on stilts. Then there were the lovely mountains round us, with an occasional walk among them. The food was better than at Stonyhurst, and we had the pleasant German light beer instead of the horrible swipes of Stonyhurst. 
One unlooked-for accomplishment I acquired, for the boy who played the big brass bass instrument in the fine school band had not returned, and as a well-grown lad was needed, I was at once enlisted in the service. I played in public, good music, too, Lohengrin and Tannhauser, within a week or two of my first lesson, but they pressed me on for the occasion, and the bombardon, as it was called, only comes in on a measured rhythm with an occasional run, which sounds like a hippopotamus doing a step dance. So big was the instrument that I remember the other bandsmen putting my sheets and blankets inside it, and my surprise when I could not get out a note. It was in the summer of 1876 that I left Feldkirk, and I have always had a pleasant memory of the Austrian Jesuits and of the old schools. Indeed, I have a kindly feeling towards all Jesuits, far as I have strayed from their paths. I see now both their limitations and their virtues. They have been slandered in some things, for during eight years of constant contact, I cannot remember that they were less truthful than their fellows, or more casistical than their neighbors. They were keen, clean-minded, earnest men, so far as I knew them, with a few black sheep among them, but not many, for the process of selection was careful and long. In all ways, save in their theology, they were admirable, though this same theology made them hard and inhuman upon the surface, which is indeed the general effect of Catholicism in its more extreme forms. The convert is lost to the family. Their hard, narrow outlook gives the Jesuits driving power, as is noticeable in the Puritans and all hard, narrow creeds. They are devoted and fearless, and have again and again, both in Canada, in South America, and in China, been the vanguard of civilization to their own grievous hurt. They are the old guard of the Roman Church. But the tragedy is that they, who would gladly give their lives for the old faith, have in effect helped to ruin it, for it is they, according to Father Tyrrell and the modernist, who have been at the back of all those extreme doctrines of papal infallibility and immaculate conception, with a general all-round tightening of dogma, which have made it so difficult for the man with scientific desire for truth or with intellectual self-respect to keep within a church. For some years, Sir Charles Mivart, the last of Catholic scientists, tried to do the impossible, and then he had also had to leave go his hold, so that there is not, so far as I know, one single man of outstanding fame in science or in general thought who is a practicing Catholic. This is the work of the extremists, and is deplored by many of the moderates and fiercely condemned by the modernists. It depends also upon the inner Italian directorate who give the orders. Nothing can exceed the uncompromising bigotry of the Jesuit theology or their apparent ignorance of how it shocks the modern conscience. I remember that when, as a grown lad, I heard Father Murphy, a great, fierce Irish priest, declare that there was sure damnation for everyone outside the church, I looked upon him with horror, and to that moment I traced the first rift which has grown into such a chasm between me and those who were my guides. On my way back to England I stopped at Paris, through all my life up to this point, there had been an unseen granduncle named Michael Conan, to whom I must now devote a paragraph. They came into the family from the fact that my father's father, H.B., had married a Miss Conan. Michael Conan, her brother, had been editor of the art journal, and was a man of distinction, an intellectual Irishman of the type which originally founded the Sean Finn movement. He was as keen on heraldry and genealogy as my mother and he traced his descent in some circuitous way from the Dukes of Brittany, who were all Conans. Indeed, Arthur Conan was the ill-fated young Duke whose eyes were put out, according to Shakespeare, by King John. This uncle was my godfather, and hence my name, Arthur Conan Doyle. 
He lived in Paris, and had expressed a wish that his grandnephew and godson, with whom he had corresponded, should call en passant. I ran my money affairs so closely, after a rather lively supper at Strasbourg, that when I reached Paris I had just two pence in my pocket. As I could not well drive up and ask my uncle to pay the cab, I left my trunk at the station and set forth on foot. I reached the river, walked along it, came to the foot of the Champs-Élysées, saw the Arc de Triomphe in the distance, and then, knowing that the Avenue Wagram, where my uncle lived, was near there, I tramped it on a hot August day, and finally found him. I remember that I was exhausted with the heat and the walking, and that when at the last gasp I saw a man buy a drink of what seemed to be porter by handing a penny to a man who had a long tin on his back, I therefore halted the man and spent one of my pennies on a duplicate drink. It proved to be licorice and water, but it revived me when I badly needed it, and it could not be said that I arrived penniless at my uncle's, for I actually had a penny left. So for some penurious weeks I was in Paris with this dear old volcanic Irishman Conan, who spent the summer day in his shirt-sleeves, with a little dicky-bird of a wife waiting upon him. I am built rather on his lines of body and mind than on any of the Doyles. We made a true friendship, and then I returned to my home, conscious that real life was about to begin. Next week will be a Sherlock Holmes adventure, and the week after that, chapters three and four of Memories and Adventures by Arthur Conan Doyle. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoy our show, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, please do take a moment and send us a review, especially you Apple listers. Until next Sunday night, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.